When the credits start rolling, but the movie keeps haunting you. Before, after. Then it's time to tune in to Dismembering Horror. We'll talk about what worked and also what didn't. We'll dissect every aspect. Maybe someone we shouldn't. He turned out to be a completely unreliable asshole. Take it away, boys. Hello, Tim. Hello, Ryan. And hello, everyone listening. Thanks for being here. And Tim, today we are joined by yet another special guest. Can you believe it? I can't. <laughs> Great. Me neither. We're so happy to have him. So let me introduce him for episode 187 here to talk about the film Arebato. All right. All right. He is a programmer for the film festival here in Los Angeles, Outfest, as well as he served as the uh, manager for the festival's preservation leg, the Outfest UCLA Legacy Project. And I know uh, he's got his something or other degree from UCLA in film archiving and preservation and very much works in that field. Here to talk about the film today I mentioned, Are Bato, which he insisted is the film he wants to talk about on our show, which we'll get into. Here he is, Mr. Brendan Lucas. Hey, hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. All right. Did I get that right? Anything else you want to tell us about yourself no. in uh, in resume form? I feel like I'm on Nardwar here, Ryan. Uh, you've done a, a good job. I Yeah, I've worked in uh, film and audio preservation for like over 10 years now. So my other hat was in, yeah, audio preservation for film and TV uh, at Deluxe Audio for almost, yeah, over nine years. So worn multiple hats. I've moved on from Outfest, had a lovely five-year stint with them, uh, but I've learned a lot about queer cinema, a little bit about horror, but I certainly learned about this film that we're going to talk about today uh, through that. So thanks for having me. <laughs> Great. And to get to know you as a uh, as a film friend and fan here, what is your uh, relationship to horror, let's say, and how has that uh, percolated in your own interests? That's a really interesting question, Ryan. My 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 relationship to horror is uh, a bit strained and uh, a bit delayed. Um, It's not a genre that I ordinarily seek out. So, you know, hold hold your applause right but uh <laughs> it's one that i've kind of slowly started to get acquainted with some of the like the major canonical films and uh i don't know if any listeners will end up knowing me but i'll i'll tell you a bit about myself i'm a guy up until covid i always tried to watch things in cinemas and so horror wasn't at the top of my list but uh, some of like so, like halloween I saw for the first time in a theater, uh, which was like a huge, huge deal and a revelation. And that was a film I only saw two or three years ago, honestly, that made me kind of think maybe I've got this whole genre wrong. So I guess part of coming on here is to uh, make amends and and open (laughs) myself to a genre that I've kind of maligned mentally, unfairly too. (laughs) And what, uh, what's, what's, what made you have second thoughts there? Uh, I think I, it makes more sense to talk about kind of my resistance to the genre where it, it, there's 
there's sort of an element of uh, repetitiveness and sort of like a fetish for for the blood and gore. But I think um, getting a, acquainted with unusual films that have an unusual approach to some of the the major beats and genres and uh, or the beats of the genre and some of the um, the typical things you might see, I think films or filmmakers that approach horror with a a unique lens or who want to try something new, I appreciate a little more. I think the other side is that like, you have to have an understanding of horror to understand like kitsch and camp because it's just those two uh, orientations are so like um, laced throughout horror. uh, And you can kind of come to almost anything with a camp appreciation. Sometimes that ruins it. You want to laugh with the film, not necessarily at it, but sometimes you just have to laugh at it. So I'm opening myself. I'm, I'm trying to get better. <laughs> but I, I hate seeing all those teens die. I just have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know for context who we're talking to here, uh, Zardoz is your favorite film, oh, right? It's certainly up there. I've talked about it uh, on a friend's podcast, which was a lot of fun. Um, certainly a movie I've seen quite a lot. Great. So Kitsch Camp appreciation for and uh well and i think you started to answer what i'm going to ask you later about why this film of all films so we'll we'll get to that further then but for now we got to jump into our movie and we'd like to do that with a trailer all right so here we go from 1979 spanish film written and directed by ivan sulueteta <laughs> Is that right? You added one extra <laughs> syllable, but we're, we're, we'll be good. <laughs> Suleta. There it is. Arrebato. Sé que solo nos hemos visto dos veces en nuestra vida. Estoy seguro de que solo tú podrías comprender lo ocurrido. Tú prometiste ayudarme. ¿Recuerdas? Si ocurre lo que imagino. Great. And I should say the title translates to Rapture in English. All right, so for Arrebato or Rapture, Brendan, per our rating system, would you tell yourself to, if you had never seen this before, just tell yourself to avoid it, stream it, rent it, or buy it? And maybe you can, in your answer there, tell us uh, your, your broad kind of review for it and why you chose it for to be the film to talk about on our show. Of course. And of course, because I, I recommended this film and I wanted you all to see it. It's a run out. It's a run out. And if I put on my Jim Cramer hat, it's a, my Mad Money hat. It's a run out and rent it. It's a run out and stream it. And uh, if you find yourself obsessed with this movie, it's a run out and buy it. That's a buy, buy, buy. Well, it's a buy, buy, buy or a rent, rent, rent. Uh, you can definitely, should I... Uh, This is you talking to you. This is me talking to me. I'm talking to me because I looked at my letterbox. I hadn't seen this movie until uh, October. No, May of 2019. So if I were to go back in time and tell myself, uh, Brendan, you know, in uh, 
uh, April of 2019. It's a run out and rent, although I couldn't probably come across this movie because it's it's getting a, a, a renaissance since it's been restored and released to DVD. Um, nowadays, if I were to, you know, talking to a, a, a medium to serious cinephile, I would say go out and buy. And uh, viewers and listeners out there, you're super lucky because this film... You don't have to put a lot of money down at all. All you need to see this movie is a library card if your library participates in Canopy. Or if you're a subscriber, as I'm sure many of you are, to the Criterion channel, you can stream this movie currently uh, on Criterion channel. Really, it, it's not a big financial investment, and uh, the reward is so great. So that was really just a sell on this movie. But we, but why, why do you love it so much? How about... You know, I ha- I had to check some reviews uh, just to be reassured, but uh, combing some of the reviews on Letterboxd and online, uh, there are a few, if any, movies. I mean, this is an extremely unique movie, uh, and I lo- I can't wait to hear what you guys think. But um, my, um, this this changed my thinking when I first saw it about the nature of cinema and time and what you could do, how much you could do with so little. Uh, and especially as pertains to horror, it opened me up to, uh, I think, horror in a way uh, that was approachable for me as a cinephile, as a cinemaniac, maybe, as uh, some of the characters in the film are. And uh, what is it about this movie that makes me tell someone, shake someone and go, like, go stream this movie right now? I think... Uh, most of the people that I'm going to talk to movies about care about movies, whether it's in in my work waking life or after hours. Um, it's it's just so unusual, and I think as we get into talking about the movie, we'll kind of tease out why. Um, but it's it's kind of horror without being horror, and like I said, it's um, the way this film is shot and edited. It makes you uh, aware of subjective states. And the passage of time, the pausing of time, and the speeding up of time uh, in a really subjective and visceral way that I think even in a roundabout way, if you don't have some of the same like horror characters or settings that you might ordinarily see, it's certainly a thrill. So I, I can't really compare it to too many other movies itself. Um, and that's why it's a, it's a total recommend for me. And I actually sent you guys to the theater to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. And so uh, a buy it from you. That's what it sounded like you It's a rent landed. It's a rent to buy. You know, I you know, if if space is at a premium, I can totally understand. Do you want me to go into my DVD spiel on this in this title or should I hold it? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to get a straight answer from you that we can put <laughs> I feel like I'm being pretty straight, but uh, I, I will say a full disclosure. Uh, so Arebato was released in a beautiful Blu-ray edition uh, by uh, a wonderful distributor here in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Altered Innocence. It's run by Frank Joffe. Uh, and so he specializes in queer coming of age movies that usually have kind of like an experimental artistic or off kilter kind of queer artistic vibe and uh, this film so wonderfully sits in that. But the reason why I recommend it uh, to buy is because uh, Altered Innocence partnered with Vinegar Syndrome. They put out incredible limited uh, release uh, DVDs and Blu-rays 
The title itself doesn't have too many goodies or extras because this has been a buried title for so long, but you're going to get a beautiful transfer uh, as well as a a making of uh, featurette that was made in 1998. So uh, I'm actually thinking about buying the Blu-ray because I want it with the subtitles. The making of that came out in 1998 is kind of a look back. Uh, and it's it lives on Vimeo if you want to search it out, but I highly recommend uh, really supporting any any title that comes through Vinegar Syndrome uh, if it's getting a release, and especially the Altered Innocence or their side res- like restoration and archival label Anus Films. They have a great logo that riffs on the the Janus Films release logo, and it's like a big buttocks. You can bleep that if you want to, but. Um, uh, Frank and his collaborators do a wonderful job, uh, as well as as Vinegar Syndrome. So they've put together a beautiful package and kind of made uh, a film from 1979 feel still really raw and really relevant and and uh, made it look as beautiful as possible. So I would say it's a buy from me, guys. What do you think? What do you think, Tim? How good of a sell is that for you? I mean, that's cool. It's all cool. Um I had I had a really weird time watching the movie. And so I like I, I almost feel like I have to watch it again to have like a good like opinion of it or any opinion of it. There are aspects of it that I really like for sure right off the bat. And there are aspects that I was just sort of like spinning on. So I would say right now I'm a rent. Not a, a rent to buy. <laughs> I think I think that's a safe bet. You know, what do you have to lose if you know your one view on your canopy account? You're down to eight <laughs> views for the month. That's really not big of an investment. No. So I um I'm currently sit at a rent, but with these these real interesting films, I never know if they're gonna grow on me more or not. Uh, but I had quite the time seeing it in theaters too, Tim. Um, and definitely enough to rent it again for sure. But the all those the special features you mentioned, Brendan, are definitely enticing. And I also uh, I appreciate your message about supporting those sorts of labels for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was just a kind of one of those. Am I am I dreaming? Is this a nightmare or not? Right now, experiences going to the movies, which I mean always worth the rental for sure so that puts it up there for me but uh yeah more specifics than that i feel like i gotta save for the bulk of the episode here uh so to sort of get us all on the same page brendan further how would you how do you summarize this film (laughs) the events of this film good luck as concisely as possible and just kind of uh we, we we hope people have seen it but this is this is to get on the same page for those of us who have and for those who haven't catch them up to speed a little bit what what was this film, Brendan? One word, Ryan, to quote Marta in the trailer and the film, Hallucine. It's like it's hallucinatory cinema. It's um and like you said, it's uh not quite a dream and not quite waking. And uh I think whether or not it's horror is something that we're gonna dive into, but I would say this movie is an attempt to capture subjective experience in film that's pretty succinct and we can expand on that but uh, this movie is so much about subjective states 
specifically whether or not the cinema itself is a subjectivity without a body and outside of human beings. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, and how about the actual events of the film? What takes place beginning to end? Well, that's a little trickier. That's a little trickier. Uh, <laughs> This movie takes place contemporaneously when it was shot about, you know, the late 1970s in post-Franco Spain. You got a, a filmmaker, uh, kind of a schlock filmmaker um, by the name of Jose. He's uh, working on like his second movie. It's kind of like a Z-grade Curse of the Werewolf Man kind of movie. He's working in Madrid, which was a really happening place in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, after years of of uh, the Frankist dictatorship, you know, the longest surviving fascist dictatorship that was very censorious and um, uh, a, a violent, brutally violent and repressive place, ultimately the one that was very stagnant. So we're here in the late 70s in Madrid, Franco's dead, Franco's dead, and this guy's making this schlock movie. So you kind of see him going about his work uh, as the C-grade filmmaker arguing with his editor about what's going to work, what doesn't work. Uh, and he decides to go to visit this country villa. I think they say it's outside of, oh gosh, it's an S name. I can't remember if he's from Segovia or Seville. Anyway, uh, he's going to a country villa to consider it as a location uh, for this next horror movie that he's working on. And his friend Marta says, yeah, this, you know, there's this country house. It'll be great. And also you have to meet my cousin. Um, he's this really wacky guy, uh, this 27 year old dude named Pedro, uh, who lives on his own and, uh, makes these movies that she describes as hallucine, like hallucinema. Like she can't really describe what the hell they are, but they're super weird. He's a very eccentric guy. They go to the house, meet, uh, Pedro's aunt, who's this kind of like, uh, a little, a little unusual, a little self-aggrandizing hostess who's like, you can put me in your movie and like, I know all the movies except that she doesn't. Uh, and then they meet Pedro, who's kind of like hulking in a corner, this kind of uh, scraggly looking, gaunt, thin, 27-year-old dude wearing a trench coat, uh, if that gives you an idea. And he's, he's sitting in the corner and uh, as they sit down to watch this old movie on TV, uh, all of a sudden, he has this weird uh, baby doll device that fast forwards our protagonist's experience of the movie and like the whole evening flashes before his eyes. Uh, one thing I should mention about our protagonist is that, uh, uh, that Jose is kind of, you know, he lives in Madrid. It's the 70s. There's a lot of drugs flowing around. He's in the grip of uh, heroin addiction and he knows when to party and he knows when to turn down. So uh, his successive trips out to this country house kind of revolve around drugs uh, and sex. <laughs> and uh, he's kind of this like pansexual weirdo, but he goes back to Madrid. He decides not to use this house uh, as a filming location, even though he had this weird subjective experience of like, wait, how did the evening flash before my eyes? And who the hell was that weird kid who showed me his weird movie? And he's later invited back, this time with his like codependent um, junkie girlfriend, Anna, 
played played by Cecilia Roth, who recognized from uh, a Motivar film, like uh, like you know half dozen of his movies. And they go back, and she's kind of a party girl. They they have an on again off again relationship, and they go again. And uh, Pedro is filming and then like hypnotizes her. You learn that Pedro has, you're not sure if he has powers or if it's a hallucination, but he has this incredible ability to enrapture people, which is basically like this weird form of hypnosis where he somehow brings an object from each person's childhood or past and is able to fixate their attention on them on that particular object, whether it's like a Betty Boop doll or um, trading cards from like the fifties, uh, it's super weird. He has how it's like. How does he have any way of knowing what this is? Uh, but yeah, Jose is coming from Madrid, showing him or like him watching uh, Pedro's movies, and then bringing or sending to him like this camera remote that allows him to do. Uh, like kind of stop motion film capture is what changes Pedro's whole life because he's this weird eccentric kid who's obsessed with film. You know, stop me if you've heard this story before, but someone who's looking for like a new way of expressing reality and it keeps trying to find a way to capture a filmic reality uh, and he doesn't have the tools. But the weird thing about him is when he watches his own movies, he come he becomes like enraptured with these mundane images that he shot. And it's kind of like network where Howard Beale just kind of like channels for a moment and then gets locked up and passes out. And so with this stop motion tool, he's able to alter the passage of time cinematically. He can do like time-lapse, he can do slow motion, he can even work the camera when he's not even behind the camera. He can film himself, he can film clouds passing. And this is what is like his launching pad to go to Madrid and continue to try to find uh, this pleasure in making and watching images. And it ends up being to disastrous effect. He kind uh, uh, Pedro goes into this happening movida madrileña scene of like the seventies, eighties. He gets into drugs. He gets into sex. He gets into watching his own movies and other people's movies. And at first, it's this ecstatic experience, and then the pleasure just kind of goes out of it for him. And he's trying to figure out why. And meanwhile, he discovers slowly that. Uh, as he's leaving the time-lapse camera on or uh, as in his increasingly drugged out state, something weird is happening with the camera. And he, when he gets the film developed in his Super 8 camera, he's getting these prints back with, uh, it starts with just one frame of red. The entire frame of the film is like blotted out and he didn't touch the camera. At first he thinks like it's his friends who are playing around with the camera. But as his physical state starts to deteriorate and as he finds less and less pleasure in experiencing the cinematic image and capturing cinema and capturing the world around him, there's more and more frames of the film come back from the developer blanked out and read it out. And he slowly starts to lose, yeah, his physical youth and his looks 
in this kind of weird Dorian Gray way. And uh, he has to reach out to Jose and see, like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? He starts sending recordings, these weird tape recordings, and the films that he shot um, to Jose uh, elsewhere in Madrid. And uh, he starts getting these packages and is like, what the hell am I looking at? And it all culminates in him. This weird cinematic experiment uh, arrives at its final conclusion um, where Pedro says, like, if I think what I think is happening, uh, there's only two more opportunities left for me to continue filming as, like, this red starts to take over the frame. And uh, basically, Jose gets there just in time to see him completely vanish. And uh, which is a weird progression. And it's a little hard to summarize here. I think that's what's so unusual about this movie is like you can give a plot summary and it really doesn't make any sense until you see it. But uh, we're led to believe that in some ways this camera is like vampiric maybe or has an ability to make people vanish uh, or incorporate them into cinema itself. And so in a way that like people's physical bodies are ultimately destined to deteriorate and die. And especially in the grips of addiction that uh, where a person does not have control over their, their physical dependence on a substance or doesn't have control over their obsession with cinema. So too uh, does a person uh, do, does um, Pedro kind of succumb to this uh, being overtaken by this disembodied camera did I do a good job? Does that kind of explain what happens in this movie? <laughs> I think that was an incredibly cogent uh, description <laughs> of something that's very hard to describe. And the only thing I want to add is you told it chronologically, but in the course of the film, we start off at the ending of him receiving the tapes for the first time. So the wraparound is uh, Jose in his apartment with um, current girlfriend, Anna, codependent girlfriend, as you said, listening back to these tapes and having their own time flashing back to these two times at the villa house place with the with the filmmaker dude, cousin Pedro. Uh, so yeah, just that that's that's the the framework. All right, then with that, we can move on to our next section here. What worked? What worked? It worked like a charm, Smith. <laughs> I'm going to bounce this question over to you, all, you guys. What worked for you about this movie? Because I can wax poetic about what 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 worked for me, but what what well, worked for you guys? What do you think? I don't know. For me, this worked fully as a what I want from a horror movie, which is just to feel like weirded out is an, ad, an adjective that I take when wanting a horror movie. Um, but also in that sense of feeling in touch with your own mortality and uh, addictions and all that jazz and what is real. I mean, that's a Tim knows from from all the episodes we've done. That's something that is always exciting and comes up in a lot of movies is what is real, what is not real and how does the film in uh, its filmmaking, its narrative, yada, yada, uh, exemplify that idea or theme in all sorts of fun and creative ways, which this did through and through. So, I mean, yeah, just as far as what worked, definitely, uh, yeah, it creeping me out and just 
feeling like it's putting you in touch with a state that is beyond our understanding. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's really, God, it, it's really close to like just a weird, weird drug trip or something like that, which I'm glad they they do in the movie. Like any of those weird times they're having, yeah, they do the cocaine and they do heroin, but there's definitely the LSD mention and suggestion too. And like when they're with each other on the bed, kind of crawling over each other. Um, all very LSD, but yeah, that the film captured that kind of like, oh God, where are we now in time and space <laughs> feeling, uh, disconcerting feeling. I mean, yeah, great, great stuff in a, but in a horror movie sense, for sure for me. Yeah. I think the, the overall weirdness is probably like, to me, the one of the bigger strengths in that I don't know. There's something really interesting about just <laughs> like not knowing whether or not this is the actors just kind of playing and like being in a scene and just going with impulsive, like weird, you know, interaction, like whatever you would call that. They're just kind of doing stuff or if it was really specifically directed to be that way, either way, I find it really interesting. I mean, all this stuff with like the different tactile things that uh, he has, like the silly putty at one point and the slime at another point. And there's, there's these behavioral things that I find really fascinating. Um, but I think more so than just that, this, I don't know how you describe, <laughs> especially if you haven't seen it, the use of, time and like flashback and narrative like it it's it's very strangely like the movie feels like it, it follows a path but you're often hearing narration of a memory of uh, and seeing that through somebody else's point of view which is really wild to think about right like in sitting down and constructing this movie, like the idea that you could actually like do that and make it work is, is insane to me, but it does work. And it, I found myself kind of forgetting where and when I was in the story, but it didn't really matter because there's this sort of cohesive through line that's also existing at the same time. So it, it was fascinating and and confusing at the same time i don't know but it, it does work so i don't know how they made it work <laughs> well like an ex i mean to, i guess to combine where we're both coming from there um a scene or a, a filmmaking technique a moment that really did all that and like okay well how did they do all these things we're saying when he's uh when Anna's talking to him and it's kind of shot like shot reverse shot like straight on with each other and we're hearing the uh the playback of the tape which uh is acting in the film sense as narration really but for them it's a sort of it's it's a past tense thing listening to this thing that happened before so to simultaneously have the present 
the girlfriend talking in the present as as at him as the same time as in what in film language is narration but in the context there is the past that's just <laughs> that just does exactly like yeah what we're saying like instills this trippy time effect but also you're like flashing all of that's happening and then we'll like enter into the flashback of of the narrate of the recording slash narration but it's but it's from the perspective of jose not uh pedro so all of that is like really twisted for me like i i i think it's fairly incredible to to like conceive of even doing something that kind of weirdly it's like mirroring itself in infinity it's very strange but wild and cool. It's interesting if you think about it because like it's, I almost want to say it's like an epistolary narrative, you know, the idea of like a story told in letters back and forth, but it's not really the case because you only have Pedro recording his stream of consciousness, detective work of both his experience of feeling enraptured by cinema and then his descent into hell. So it's not a back and forth thing. And yeah, as you said, like Jose is experiencing this, his individual narrative going forward as he's being taken back into time by these like audio recordings. And so I've seen this movie three, at least three times. I'm going to say this is an official third watch. And I think what is so incredible and what works about this movie is an inter an interlacing or a weaving of auditory narrative and picture. And it's, Mm. I think that's what works and what this film specifically does that I've seen very few of any other movies do before. And that's why I'm so effusive of it. It's like, we all agree that like we've experienced this weird thing, whether or not it like worked or didn't work, but I think technically that does that is what makes it work. We know we've experienced a strange passage of time and the way it's effectively done is through like montage and sound editing, <laughs> which sounds really basic to say, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm still thinking of ways it's doing all that kind of structurally or plotting wise also cuz like you put over this movie something that I've, I'm always mentioning also, like Tim, when I mentioned the um, horror movies, how they're unique among a lot of genres where rather than the this, this sort of, um, they, they escalate in like a clear line, right? You know, till till you have that example I always use, you have greatest ending ever, this the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Chainsaw dance, you know, that cut to black, right? It's just after this pure escalation. But this movie, it's so fascinating how it's doing that because like you said, Brendan, it's a descent into hell for sure. And we have like a clear, okay, time is progressing that we can observe, whether it's with the visits, um, the, uh, the, the, the wraparound story, if you want to call it that, but then also the red, the, the, the red that's filling up the frames growing and growing. But it still is doing, but, but what's interesting is it's like still, so like that, that's all it puts you on that trajectory. 
but it's like the I'm trying to figure out, but it's like the locations play a big part in giving where you still have this trapped feeling. So it's it, it gives us this effect where it's simultaneously feels like you feel the dread increasing, but you also feel like you're going nowhere at all, which is that like feeling you described, Tim, where it's like, where are we right now in this movie, even though we have these trajectories? A formal element of this that works for me is the music. Because when we're talking about, like, uh, there's so many rapid shifts in what we talk about subjective state, both for the viewer and for the characters in the film. And kind of what that turnaround is, is like, say, Jose goes out to the country and introduces this reclusive 20-something-year-old filmmaker who's isolated, you know, may not have had many relationships with people and is obsessed with movies and introduces him to heroin or introduces him to cocaine, which, like, changes his state and turns him into this kind of, like, (laughs) uh, nutty professor, like, suave guy, uh, which is such a weird transformation of going from this kind of freaky character in a trench coat to, like, this slick-backed hair kind of guy. And... The character is like, well, now I can think like so much of the film is about rhythms and like kind of frequencies of states of mind. And that's abetted by these wacky and incredible music choices. So if you hear if I say something like, oh, there's kind of this weird merry-go-round circus theme uh, that happens when they're on drugs. It's like, well, that sounds kind of cliche, but it's actually it works to incredible effect because you witness their slowing down and the change or being hypnotized or their change in consciousness. uh, And you start to experience this other world, this neither world of time and space and emotion uh, where they can actually connect to each other. And that's kind of the, one of the horrors of this movie is like, oh, it's kind of on this altered state of reality that they can actually talk about what it is that they're really feeling. Well, think it's like in that, meta within the world of the film way where I mean I just love this as a character too like this is so unique I'd never seen this in any movie ever where you have someone who's obsessed with rhythm right he's like what's that line he has where he says he gets all excited about going on a trip saying I'll discover thousands of secret rhythms (laughs) okay what does that look like Um, and he's uh, and then he gets so excited after he gets the, the 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 time, what what is that called? The the being able to record, you know, frames at specific intervals. That's all he's been wanting. He gets so excited um, about that. But yeah, no. As far as in that meta way, where it's someone who's obsessed with wanting some kind of like reassuring constant rhythm that just gives you some kind of like ah yes this is a, a this is a definitive reliable source right right that's what like rhythm represents so to have that put up against this backdrop where what the hell is real what's going on um and i don't know if this is quite music maybe this is med- uh, ventures more to sound effects but you have a couple times like when you mentioned when he's watching the TV and the TV speeds up while that's happening. We get this, this like synthesizer, uh, blooping, like tech. I don't know. There's a specific sound or a way to describe it, but, um, like early synthesizer, like clicking or, or solid tone sound that, um, starts slow, almost sounds like it's that kind of reassuring rhythm that, that, 
he's seeking. But then as the TV speeds up, it goes faster and higher pitched, higher pitched, higher pitched, goes out of control, crazy, uh, just like he does. <laughs> it's still... I still like have a hard time wrapping my head around like the way this is constructed in that like to me my, my I felt most of the time that I'm seeing this world through Jose's eyes right like so <laughs> the implication then is that for example like you were describing Brendan when when Pedro takes any drugs or whatever and turns into this sort of this alter ego almost is that jose's perception of that change you know what i mean or is that like what is the perspective like who like what we're seeing as the audience is that in line with what anybody in the film is seeing does that make sense like I constantly was like, what movie and who am I seeing this story through? And I don't know that there's actually a specific answer, but I've, I'm fascinated by this way of doing it that it almost just sort of throws out any rule on like, like I guess, protagonist, antagonist. Like who who is the story about or through because like i would say ostensibly by the time you get to the end it's it's pedro's story but and we're seeing it through jose's eyes like that seems right but there are all these moments interspersed that sort of defy that as well so i (laughs) like i think that's part of what's adding to this element of dreaminess is that like when we dream Sometimes we're seeing the world through our eyes and and it's first person and it's a POV like we're experiencing or sometimes we're seeing ourselves in the dream doing things, but we're still us, but we're like watching ourselves. So like, I think that's what's working so much about how this is made is that it by by like letting go of any sort of really rigid dogmatic like like rules of how you tell a visual story and like from whose perspective or whatever, whatever you are almost, uh, not what would be the word you're, you're purposefully causing the, the feeling of the film to turn into more of a dreamlike thing or, or a hallucination or an acid trip or whatever. And I think that makes it that that's like the core element of why it's unsettling is because we're like, we're never on solid ground, even though the characters feel really like solid. Right. I mean, so it's, <laughs> what is going or on? if it's waking reality, it's uh, you sort of identify with the characters as they're coming down and. Uh, you know, visually, the 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 actor or the the two most affected characters, Jose and Pedro, you, you see them kind of physically deteriorate and looking strung out. And uh, I have to think about that if it's reflected as well in terms of the editing too. If we start to feel kind of strung out and in withdrawal because of how it's mm-hmm. edited, not only kind of the the makeup and um, and their their world. I, I was thinking about 
the sound cues, Ryan, like you were talking about with the the proto kind of the the synth soundtrack. And in terms of like the stretching and elongation of time, I have to think about that weird moo cow toy sound. Do you remember that? That's in the soundtrack. Yeah. If you think about those toys that you flip under upside down and they make that kind of sound, there's a the auditory and visual motif of of weird toys that stretch out time or that snap. So you have like these non-Newtonian like fluids or solids, I guess. <laughs> Not a physicist, but like the goo. The goo. You have the silly putty and like the weird goo that Jose gives to Pedro later on. He's like, yeah, it's pretty cool. But it's like <laughs> a visual analogy for how something seemingly solid can be stretched out in weird ways. And I think that's analogous to how we're experiencing the passage of time in this movie. Yeah, which it's it's so cool about. Just like, I mean, yeah, that was, I was thinking the goo, it's got to connect somehow. But like for a movie where it's so easy just to be like, well, what the hell was that? It's so weird or crazy. It's like so consistent and thorough with all these little elements that connect to these idea of theme and uh the theme of um space and time like you have just down to at the beginning when he's uh talking to is it like the landlord or a neighbor letting him in and that that landlord he can't remember what day of the week it is like just (laughs) little touches (laughs) yeah little touches like that i mean the framing device itself it's it's where it's just this one, except for when at the way end, when he shows up, um, when Jose goes to Pedro's apartment and, you know, meets his demise, if uh, <laughs> that's the right word for it, uh, it's all over the course of this one night. So just the fact that it's like all one night, yet we're flashing back to all these different times. I mean, that's that's a, the, the mind trip. Um looking at the comic books where he says, you know, he's a fan of them because the characters in them, they are stuck in time, but then also that it's, uh, which he says, uh, look at them uh, enraptured in their state, captured in their enraptured state. Uh, But that he also likes that they're from a different time period. So like both stuck in time and from a different time. Well, in that, that specifically is what happens in the end, right? Like, like he and Jose, I mean, first Jose sees him in that state on the film, right? Mm. Like he, a single frame of him at first. I, I mean, it is a single frame, right? He's, he's stopped the film at the one frame where Pedro is, is there, but it's, a, it's so trippy because he's existing in the frame. And I mean, like, he's moving, but it's a single frame. <laughs> How do I describe this? Right, he <laughs> pauses on a single frame of film, the last remaining frame of film that that Pedro has been reduced to because ostensibly he's been sucked into the camera, we're led to believe, maybe? Sure, yeah. But then, is it hallucination? Is it subjective? Is it actually happening where the still projected frame starts moving? Right. And Jose then also, like, his image overlays with Pedro's image in that frame and sort of bleeds back and forth between it before the, the sort of final moment of the film, which I don't know. I like, <laughs> I kind of walked away going like, I'm not smart enough for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of a mind pretzel. I think like an important thing 
you know, not to go veer too off track, but an important thing to realize about Ivan Sulueta is that he was addicted to heroin for a long time. And, and one of the, I mean, you can have a sense just watching this that it's like, yeah, someone who has experience with drugs made this movie. But uh, I think he and some of the crew and the cast uh, and his social circle in the process of making this movie over what was supposed to be 15 days that like ballooned out of proportion was uh, kind of both playing with and partying with, but also struggling with the addiction to heroin and probably some other drugs as well. Um, And I just can't help but think that it's, um, one of the best depictions or rendering of like the subjective state of both like ecstasy or rapture uh, of of a drug like heroin uh, or drugs like cocaine, uh, but also fall, you know coming down from them uh, and depicting that in both like a subjective and visual way or a rhythmic way. Yeah, because there is a. I mean, I felt like there was a almost cautionary aspect to it like we're seeing these people go through a bunch of ups and downs within that uh experience of drug use and and like it's not pretty like it's not glamorized right like at no point am i thinking hell yeah this looks like a good time (laughs) you know like they they seem like they're having a good time (laughs) but i'm watching them going I don't think so. Like, I don't think this is going to end well. And so maybe I'm just anticipating it, but like, nonetheless, it feels cautionary to me. Like, it feels like I'm like, there's a lesson (laughs) to be taken away here that maybe, you know, like don't get too down the rabbit hole. Well, it feels cautionary because the ending does feel like a horror movie ending in a way. He gets, he disappears. They get trapped in the film world or dimension. And even saying that, we don't know where one starts and where where the other ends. Like when you said, uh, (laughs) you feel like you're smart enough for the movie. Do you just mean like um, there was no clear answer to you or? No, no. I mean, (laughs) I guess I mean, there's so much going on that is, well, that's potentially metaphorical that to like peel back that metaphoric, un- wait, to peel back the metaphor that is an onion, <laughs> not a metaphorical <laughs> onion. Uh, you know, I love it. <laughs> does that make sense? Like, that, like, I'm like, I'm not prepared for that. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, I could try. But like it's so layered that I'm like I, where to begin? Right. Well, just as far as that ending, though, specifically, I mean, that's for you know just to to stay on it for a sec. I mean, it worked so so well for me in the horror movie sense because that just encapsulated what I was describing, just that end point pinnacle of like, well, what the hell just happened? But it is it's a scary thing, you know, the idea yeah. of you're getting taken away from the reality you presumably want to be rooted in to forever trapped somewhere else that's beyond or in or out or extra in space and time. We don't know, you know, no words for it. So, okay. So that's why I wanted to clarify. It wasn't specifically like the ending, which I think works because there's no clear what, because the point is what just happened exactly. And it's some horror of we don't know and can't know exactly what just happened. And it captured that. And it did enough to just in the, the 
Okay, audience, we're showing you the clear thing of the camera is moving by itself. It gives it that like uh, that malevolent force or omni omnipotent force feel to it too. That's just oh, this is creepy. It's great. But but I hear so one of the things that I think is so effective about how this is all constructed is like I've been around somebody who is tripping like hard on meth. And watching them interact with with my reality because it's we're not ha- we're not experiencing the same reality is the feeling that I had when the camera started moving on its own where it's like I've watched a dude literally tell me that there's a guy in the corner and he's like right there right there he's right there and I'm like there's nobody there right like I'm like I'm pretty sober and. I I know that there's nobody there and you are flipping out. And so I think you could argue that like in that moment, we, the audience are not seeing reality. We're seeing Pedro's reality or Jose's reality. And that reality is under this influence of whatever's going on in their brain, whether it be drug or just like the, like the disintegration of their reality and so, like, to me, all of those things it, it being kind of layered upon each other in the film leave you with this, like, you could just say it's all allegorical. Like, this is all just a sort of a tale uh, uh, to say, like, hey, man, drugs are really crazy and, like, maybe watch out. But also, <laughs> maybe the camera was you know it was moving for real and and sucking him into it so like if both of those existing is what i think makes this type of film so fascinating is that like you could just be like i you know it's literal it's metaphorical it's allegorical it's whatever and i think that's really cool and then just one extra point on the if you take it metaphorically the idea of it being a camera and the idea of the observer changing your re- changing the reality of the room i guess for lack of a better way of putting it is super fascinating to me because like partially this is tangential but i'll make it short i think i mentioned it before there's such a thing as this double slit um experiment which which Basically, the easiest way to put it is you put two slits in a piece of cardboard and you shoot photons through it. They'll behave a certain way as long as there is an observer. And that observer can be a person in the room or it could be a camera. It doesn't matter, but they behave a certain way when there's an observer and they behave a different way when there's no observer. And that's just a thing that we kind of don't understand in in like physics. And... To have this movie kind of like not probably not intentional. I don't know when that experiment was made or whatever, if it was known to the filmmaker, but I think it's touching on kind of the same thing that there's this like when you start talking about capturing reality on a device where you are no longer the only observer, right? You're you're observing through a medium that medium itself becomes a part of the observation. Right. Which, right, it's like, it's an entity. 
Which, when you're looking at it, if not as a drug allegory, but the story of, I mean, if the drug allegory is an allegory for being obsessed with, let's say, media and film. Totally. Uh, it's, I mean, it's crazy because you have the character who can only really experience rapture when looking at real life projected back, which, I mean, put in this lens, we look at that. That's a great thing when we all go to the movies and feel like we're taken away by a movie and Mel Gibson yells freedom and it's just the best, <laughs> feel, you know? But like, but you can look at that. It's just in horror, it just is that great thing where it feels like, oh, you can p- look at that as something scary too. In that moment, when you're in the theater, you're completely taken outside of your reality, which we typically pose as a good thing. Yeah, you know, let me binge this show. Take me away from what's going on in the world right now. Uh, but you can just as easily put a scary... Uh, uh, a not so nice uh, bent to that angle on that lens on that. I love what you said, Tim. I had to go. I did a quick Google. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle was formulated in 1927, but uh, the the idea old. that <laughs> observation of the phenomenon will affect the phenomenon itself, and also that you can't like the 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 tighter accuracy you want, it'll get into ever diminishing. Uh, fractions of inaccuracy or uncertainty. <laughs> um, so right. the, the camera moving it by itself feels like an example of that because like you said, oh, you can look at that as the reality that Jose is experiencing, but it feels like when you're watching it in the movie that they're both not looking at it. They're both gone at that point. So it really does feel like uh, the camera can't move in that same way as that principle when people are looking at it. But in that moment, our camera is the, you know, the, 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 the viewpoint of God doesn't count in the principle. So we do observe <laughs> this thing that can only move when no one's looking moving. Well, and that's why I say it's sort of this, the, the, the movie itself feels like an infinity mirror, right? Like to, you know, this sort of thing where you're just like, it, it <laughs> we are, are watching a movie that was filmed on a camera about people using like filming their version of reality through a camera that is filming them (laughs) and has a, a life of its own or a mind of its own. And they themselves who have the camera are watching the film from that camera behave But like we're seeing that, I mean, it's like never ending. It just feels like (laughs) it's insanity, but like the kind of the coolest type of insanity. And so (laughs) that's kind of what I mean when I'm like, my brain just is not equipped. Right. Where it's like you have it on just so many layers where like towards the beginning, we have uh, Pedro cuts in in like the corner of the the bathroom or the room or something like that. Yeah. But that technique it, it, it like clearly registers in our brain as like you're watching a film and frames are being cut in and out yet it's also being experienced in that reality by Jose as just him appearing and disappearing so both the senses uh Brendan for you in like the the whether it's the ending or just as things are getting you know spiraling out of control more and more like is it working for you in that disturbing horror movie sense is there like anything specific that you know you could say got to you in that way i was gonna say what my last major what worked for me it's kind of an overall 
general feeling and hopefully I can narrow down on it. But what works for me in this movie is how sort of in the beginning when we're watching Pedro and we're watching Jose, well, we're watching Jose first and then Pedro, you have kind of distinct moments of uh, their vices or experience. So you have, you know, um, Jose working in cinema and then he goes home. He's had a hell of a day. He's kind of wrestling with, is he going to shoot up or not? Uh, but over the course of the film, and then, you know, his like sexual entanglement with his girlfriend, Anna, and over the course of the film, as these characters' lives become intertwined over the course of maybe like a year and time and distance, uh, as you're drawn into Pedro's narrative, there's this incredible conflation of what used to be distinct pleasures or experiences or ecstasies, which were like cinematic expression and obsession, uh, drugs, and sexuality. And what this movie does that I haven't really seen any others do quite like it is subtly conflate those different and distinct kind of sensations or pleasures to the point where sexuality, cinephilia, and drug, like euphoria, are all kind of intertwined and mixed in this weird combined sense where time and space have kind of like been uh, contracted and expanded over time. I was kind of thinking about it. I Maybe if you've talked about like any of the Hellraiser movies, but like, I guess, Cenobites, these beings, interdimensional beings who are constantly in, c- condemned to conti- consistently seek out ever greater pleasures and how kind of pain and pleasure become uh, conflated or confused or inverted, it seems almost like what this movie is trying to grasp towards is like the pursuit of ever greater ecstasy, which while maybe not as like heroin users, you might not relate to, but as cinephiles, you could probably relate to. It's like, uh, you know, do you have just kind of like a baseline need to be excited or what is it about someone that seeks out ever greater and ever more specific cinematic experiences and then continue to dissect them too (laughs) now i don't know if drug addicts are you know i mean but i was also thinking about arrowid because some of this like some of the experience of of pedro and jose talking back and forth about like what they can do with cinema was kind of like an arrowhead board where they're like, I had this extreme experience and I want to take it further. And did you guys see the little, you know, self-replicating machine elves when you did this particular experimental hallucinogen and I'm going to track it down. Yep. Saw the machine elves again, or no, I didn't. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about at all. <laughs> so uh, that's something that, that really worked for me. I don't know. <laughs> so did that culminate for you in any kind of actual disturbed you horror sequence moment well this is where we start to get into what didn't work but uh in terms Mm. of what was disturbing uh did that worked for me i mean i guess the culmination of the film is like a weird memento mori like you know for us cinephiles like (laughs) ultimately it has to end the end credits have to come up at some point uh if we're lucky enough to experience them so uh I guess what's terrifying with this movie is that people are literally sucked into cinema. Uh, But I guess one has to, one is confronted with the existential problem of like, you've spent a life seeking out unusual experiences through film or video. 
or, or any kind of media and sort of what does it amount to in the end? It's not necessarily explicit in the movie, but it's something that I was confronted with while watching it like a third time. <laughs> no, I mean, that's all I've been thinking about for, you know, this mostly for this discussion here. Exactly. I find it really interesting that you bring up Hellraiser, though, because part of the thing that I think is really working in this film, too, that like is harder for me to relate to as a cis dude, like the queerness sort of aspect of it that that does exist in in Clive Barker's stuff. I mean, there's actually like you now I'm like, oh, shit, there's this weird similarity between this and Clive Barker's filmmaking that I think maybe based in this experience of queerness of like identity and like losing a sense of that or having to go through different experiences in life to either lose it to find it or find it to lose it and to that that like this blurring of the actual characters it happens in this movie so like jose and pedro and i mean marta is a part of it too and um anna is a part of it i think in to 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 lesser degrees but for example they 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 put I mean, Jose ends up in Pedro's clothing, right? Like he becomes him to to a certain effect when they're overlaid on top of each other in the film in the very end of it. There's something to this blurring of identity and like of of persona uh, that I think maybe is speaking to the kind of kind of archaic and and maybe even stupid construct of of like gender identity or or sexual identity that that in a way there's more of just a sort of like yo like these are all constructs man like we don't need to go down that pathway too hard and like and like that may maybe be coming from more of a queer perspective that that's that's part of the story. I'm, I might be reaching. I'm, I'm not sure because that's not my personal story. So it's hard for me to know. But like, I feel like I'm getting that sense from it potentially. And I think that's really cool because it is speaking about sort of this broader thing of like, who are we anyway? And that, like that I can relate to. Like that's throughout the film. And so who are we and how do we express who we are artistically feel like the things that, that kind of continuously are happening throughout the film for everybody. Um, and I think it's really interesting too, that like Marta being kind of the most sub, you know, of the four of them, the least involved character, she's also a part of it. She gets sucked into the camera and she's not really like involved. So like, nobody's nobody's safe <laughs> which i think is really cool i was trying to figure that out at the because it happens towards the end of the movie where they're they're nearing the last frames that won't turn red right and yeah marta gets sucked into the camera and pedro thinks it's the camera's revenge for what gloria did and gloria was like 
the kind of weird Madrid friend hanger on of Pedro's who's voiced by Pedro Almodovar <laughs> really funnily, like there's on-screen dubbing. So she's kind of this weird like party girl, but I couldn't remember what it was that she did to the camera. It, was it cause she like kind of stopped paying attention? Like she was supposed to like, like uh, watch vigil over Pedro while he slept and make sure that nothing yeah. happened to him, you know, like, did this really happen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she got bored. Yeah, she's like, so she go. didn't, it's like she didn't take it seriously enough. And so she like has to pay a price for that. Mm. Which let's just say like that, that idea by itself is actually really poignant. Because if somebody comes to you and say, hey, I'm having like a serious crisis right now. Please like watch over me in this, like this, I just need you to do this one thing for me. Just take this one thing seriously. And and they <laughs> just take this one thing seriously and they don't. That's I mean, talk about anybody going through any life experience and you you recruit somebody important to you to try and actually like support you in that moment and they get bored. Mm-hmm. Fuck off. Like then like they're not a, like they're not a friend. They're not cool. Like that's that's such a interesting perspective to have to say, like, let's let's. She's like this. She's sort of a sacrificial lamb in this to sort of prove that point. Well, I mean, that's just a, a, a drug addiction metaphor right there, too. With you saying, like, with that, you're in the room with someone who is having that that unfortunate time, that difficult time. Uh, but when you're not the one experiencing it, it's easy just to be like, oh, they're just high. It's not real. Like, right. whatever, whatever. Just in the way that, oh, how could this uh, this weird video of film experiment he's doing actually be serious? It's fine. Whatever. He's it can't be that serious. Well, and then or, or just take it on an artistic level. People just like d- being dismissive of people's art. Mm-hmm. Right. That happens um, a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, um. <laughs> I just wanted to get out more ways where, yeah, it connects to, or just examples within the film connects to that idea of, yeah, being being trapped by film in certain ways, as well as just messing with uh, ideas of time. The fact that they, uh, Pedro, and they say it, he still acts like a child. Mm-hmm. That idea of arrested development being, you know, uh, stuck in a time in your life, but then also not at the same time. He is older and how that's messy because we hear equally advice, you know, in life. Oh, access the the kid in you, approach it from a place of childlike mm-hmm. wonder. Yet we also hear, you know, no, you gotta grow up and act like this, you know, take like seriously, like both are true, which uh these run-ins with um seemingly opposing uh truths is what is always unveiled in our horror themes and discussions here. Uh the recordings themselves just sound like like the recordings of a madman detective where Mm -hmm. it's like when you're watching it and experiencing it, this doesn't have to do with time so much, but more just the overall experience when watching it, they just feel like the ravings of a madman, but also at the same time, it feels like this is all real, but it's just the kind of thing where it's like, because the raving madman uh, doesn't know which details are important. They are all important 
<laughs> combined that with the uh, the tone that it ta- that it sounds like on the actual recorder, it just is like piercing you the whole movie. You know, it's just in the way that just uh, 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 uh. Um, and then uh, oh, and then that quote at the beginning too. I just again when I I said earlier, there's for something that's so out there, it's really consistent in all these themes and ideas. But at the beginning of the movie, when they're, uh, he's working with the editor on the film as, uh, uh, he's leaving, Jose is leaving. He goes kind of quips. Well, it isn't me who loves cinema. It's cinema that loves me, which I mean, that's, it ends with him getting trapped in cinema. So like, (laughs) could be more perfect in that sense. Yeah. I was thinking about one of the great conundrums that this film raises. That's something that I experienced as someone who watches a fair number of movies, but not as many as some other people. But like, what does it mean to say that you watched a movie? Like what, what fleeting memories, you know, while you're experiencing it all seems so present, but your, you know, unconscious memory latches onto certain things and will forget others. Um, And thinking about, that conflated with like drug experiences or uh, any kind of like heightened experience where it's like, you really want to remember something you're experiencing this, like this high or whatever, or something that's out of the ordinary. Uh, But then when you come back to a normal waking state, it's like, can you even relate this to someone else? It's like, you know, uh, I had a professor once say it's the three D's that no one wants to hear about are dreams, diets, and drug experiences. Like if you try to relate that to someone else, you just, no one knows what the hell you're talking about and it's kind of boring. (laughs) Um, But it was so visceral and real to you in the moment. And uh, what this film sort of investigates for me that also works is how we interact with movies in our waking life or any kind of experience, but especially the movies. I think that's what's so central to this. Um, whether it's through those, those trading cigar cards, which I think are a big part of how like golden age of Hollywood was experienced in Spain. And it's something that I hope I can come back later because there's an interesting intertextual kind of reference that is my pet theory about this movie and the work of Pedro Almodovar, but experiencing a movie, it's like, well, how do you advertise something that no one's ever seen? It's like, well, you have these tangible objects that are tradable that kind of tell the story of the movie or that tell you about the stars who are in the movie or interesting scenes, but you haven't seen the movie. And it's kind of the same, like what what uh, Pedro uses to kind of enrapture or hypnotize uh, Jose and Ana are like things from their past, whether it's that Betty Boop doll. And she's like, how is it possible it's the exact Betty Boop doll? It's like, well, did he plumb your memory? Is it a weird coincidence? Or, you know, what, what exactly happened? But uh, the way that he manipulates childhood memory uh, or recalls childhood memory in order to enrapture people is super fascinating. It's like he's seeking out other sensitives I couldn't help but think about like The Shining, but The Shining in reverse. It's like he's <laughs> super, you know, he's super sensitive to these experiences and trying to see who else can shine. But rather than it being a shining, uh, I think it was Respondor in, in the Spanish translation, it's like they're they're enraptured. He's like looking for other people who similarly get arrebatado. 
And he's kind of like, oh, she can kind of do it. Like, I hypnotized her with this Betty Boop doll. For him, it was these like trading cards for King Solomon's Mine, this this old uh, classic Hollywood movie. Uh, But it was like the most important thing to you as a child that that Pedro even forgot, or sorry, that uh, Jose even forgot about. He's like, "I, I haven't looked at these since I was a kid, but it was this incredible evocative memory that was able to fixate him and uh, like have proximity and, and closeness and honesty with this person. So it's, it's, it's weird to think about this as like someone who thinks a lot about movies. And as I get older, it's like, how do I tell that I've seen a movie, something that was like so life-changing in the moment. And then you walk out of the theater, maybe you think about it for the next couple of days, but at the end of the day, now it's like, Oh, I have a letterbox entry about it, but I, I don't really, not really a big collector of DVDs anymore. You know, I'm not the, 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 the cycle for talking about movies and films release is just diminished to almost like a week by week basis. And it's, it's weird to think about that, how, how the, the physical traces of movies still kind of live on, uh, and, and what they can evoke rather than the experience itself. This is actually very fascinating to me because I, in, in you describing that I'm having a realization that at least for some people, I would imagine, and and I think I'm realizing for me included, film is like the only medium that gets you close as the creator to letting other people see what your mind sees, whether it be dreams or imagined. But like, well, I know this is not true for everybody, I guess. Not everybody sees in images, right? Like maybe feels right but like if you can if you can get that thing that's going on inside your brain produced and created onto a screen for other people to experience similarly like isn't that the whole game i mean that's how david lynch talks about it he uses those terms of the idea like what is the idea i connect to it more as like the feeling that you're trying to put through and then the, how those ideas represent the feeling does this what wardrobe is closer to the idea is how he'd put it it's, you know it's which one feels more like the idea though the green shirt or the red shirt you know right right but that i mean that's this film is i think also i don't know if it's intentional but i guess that's what i'm kind of walking away with is that the film is is directly <laughs> like impacting me on that level well it's cool how that i think a movie can a filmmaker can accomplish that a film can accomplish that uh and we see it here when it's is inspired by you know firsthand experience because like i was like the 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 montage shots that are kind of quick cutty at the beginning of driving around the city and the way they capture late 70s Spain there and the way the uh the cinemas look all that like has a very specific feeling of it's very visceral this film just like the feel of the apartment that when you're watching it like <laughs> you know what it feels like to be in there because they've been in there oh the filmmaker and the actors the camera itself all that you also can feel what it feels like to have done drugs in those in mm. those spaces too and uh, yeah and just it's the things like that that add up where you know music is a really powerful 
way to do that too. Like diegetic music though, though too, because then that's coming from the perspective of the filmmaker going, okay, we, I, with you, with the characters are all experiencing this special moment in time, which I thought was so good. My, my last big, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, no, a couple more things, but that, the, the Betty Boop dance scene. You know I love the dance scenes, Tim, and those are always my favorite scenes in uh, the movies we watch. But it got me thinking in this one, how you know it's like a like a like a, a figure skating performance or like a senior prom dance whatever like a um just a crazy you know any any live performance whatever or even if it's not live and is being played back to you it is it's finite you know it's an, a finite uh it's an experience that we can only have personally because it's finite so to have that scene where yeah we have a couple she performs for him, dances for him that way. It feels like we're in the room watching it too. And it's just one of those moments where the sound, the, the, the song itself combined with like the actor's makeup, the fact that she's in front of the projector, it's just all adds up to such a feel that's like, okay, yeah, the filmmaker, like it feels like they're taking uh, uh, just a, not even a chapter, but like a paragraph out of their real life and just like injecting that experientially into us. You know, I have the benefit of watching that scene today and I'll, I'll admit here to fast forwarding through that scene, not because I don't appreciate it because I've seen it a couple times before. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta finish my rewatch, but it's true. It's absolutely true. It's, the 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 space time in that scene is allowed to unfold in basically real time, and so you have Cecilia Roth like dressed up like like Betty Boop doing this number to like a fifties crooner song, uh, like the the record is playing in the background, and she just does the number, and it's so unusual because it's one of the few scenes in the film that doesn't have uh, Pedro narrating over it. It just is allowed to happen and unfold in real time. And so it's kind of like a breather scene. And I wonder about its significance, but it, it does sort of break things up in a way. But talking about like the subjectivity of time and and like allowing a, a yeah a chapter or a page to happen in, in film time, it, it is unusual. Um, well, it's 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 cool because it's it's doing something within the context that we know they're a codependent couple that he is going into his apartment rehearsing how to break up with her. You know, it's clearly oh, like yeah. they he wants the relationship to end. Yet she's performing I that's the, it's like I know it as the Elvis song. It's not the Elvis version, but I want you, I need you, I love you is the song. So to think that because of that song or within that performance of that song, maybe they are actually both experiencing then and there an actual genuine loving connection somehow, whatever it does work about the relationship, which is just, I mean, that's, it's a whole nother, I don't know, story, but you can just see how it plugs in here of, um, you know why breakups can be so hard it's like okay but still in this moment of this one song like it's working and i feel what works here it's also a moment that interrupts because he's about the projector's going on in the background the the film isn't threaded up so the projector's just running with a light on and like i mentioned it's like oh yeah there's you know there's no tape narration of pedro droning on in his like strung out voice and so you just kind of get anna like doing a dance that's like a shared moment that's not elongated or contract. It's elongated in the sense that it's just allowed to happen, but 
I guess narratively it gives those two characters like, oh, there is kind of connection. And this crazy guy that keeps intruding in their life isn't allowed to interrupt it. Like he's about to put on this next, you know, installment of the film and it kind of stops, right? And all this within a film where part of the experiential horror is (laughs) feeling like it might never end when you're watching it. (laughs) There is no finite end to this film. Well, that that is the last, isn't that really the last moment between Jose and her that is like a moment of connection? It feels like from that point on there, they really start to, to like fall apart. He, he's, becomes more and more like focused on the film and and on the recording and she's trying to like be like no no no, i'm still around and he's like get out of here right so that's the last moment when the film is when the projector is on but no film and no recording are happening that they actually get to like be together in a seemingly somewhat nice way not that their relationship is particularly nice but Yes. There are moments. Eventually, she's like, we could have a child together. What about that? Like, let's do something other than the way it's like, oh, man, this is like, <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of get this sense from Anna that's interestingly explored. And she talks about it herself, how, uh, oh, I allow myself to be used and I can't believe I'm back here. It's it's this interesting up and down narrative arc that's very chaotic and serves as an interesting counterbalance to um, Jose's obsession, increasing obsession with finding out the mystery of this this guy and his films. <laughs> right. And the red on the film, which I just like love that that's the mystery. It's so specifically like, oh, feels like it's something that should be easy just to write off as like just a weird random air or something put off to chance, yet it is happening reoccurringly and also growing so there's something to it it's great that great level of disconcertingness with that um last last thing i had was just the uh i love that it's a like what do you say like a z-grade horror movie director like or you could say <laughs> yeah. more more like mainstream horror movie director starring in for lack of a better word an art house horror film so something mm-hmm. about that i really love Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. I feel like we're no no one's saying anything else, so maybe we can move on to our next section here or speak now forever, hold your peace. I, I want to get in that because uh Tibby had talked about about queerness and I was just thinking about like the like it it it's never explicit, but like how Pedro, this like young 27-year-old, like kind of reclusive weirdo that when he gets on drugs becomes this like suave, sexy guy and kind of subconsciously represents. We we don't really know how Jose feels about it, but he is definitely like enraptured in some way by his mystery, whether that's like sexual or filmic or emotional uh, or what. He keeps being compelled back to that. And it's interesting to think about that, like the heterosexual relationship that's obviously chaotic, the potentially like homosexual relationship that's also chaotic, but in a different way, it represents novelty and like going for that, that, that um, novelty or ecstasy that he's not experiencing in his waking life. But uh, it was interesting how you, you, you talked about the breaking down of, of identity categories of identity. Uh, I was thinking back again to Hellraiser, like the breaking down, uh, of pleasure and pain 
and I was thinking about S and M relationships in their relation to like pleasure and pain, and also like dominant submission and like kind of surrender or yeah, kind of pain uh, becoming pleasurable and and surrender, which is talked about in the movie. I think ultimately Pedro decides. Uh, he wants to surrender to the camera that is slowly draining away his life, metaphor, right? Uh, and it's kind of a choice he makes to see where it's going and kind of a choice he makes because he can't see any other alternative. Like his inner valuation of pleasure and pain has been so disoriented, not talking about just S&M or anything like that, but like, uh, more so in the, in the sense of like real addiction of whatever it is, an obsession that it's, yeah, he can't help but surrender. And ultimately Pedro makes, sorry, Jose makes the same decision. Like he wants to see what the hell the end of the mystery is and he surrenders to it. Right. right. Well, is there a quicker way into rapture than in our physical waking life than pleasure and pain, you know? Ooh. Um, did, did you guys just read the, or not? Yeah. I don't know. This, did it feel this way to you where the film, it feels like it presents, uh, like bisexuality as the default sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a fluidity and it's never made explicitly. It's never explicitly problematized or made the subject of like exposition, expository dialogue. Right. This is never the crux of of the explicit crux of of the the drama of the movie which is right exactly refreshing like yeah yeah, okay okay cool i just felt that way watching it all right well then i think we can move on to see if there is anything that did not work for us in our next section we have for just that what did not work it's not ready yet seems to work okay no something important's missing <laughs> Tim, I see a smirk on your face. What didn't work for you for this picture? <laughs> it has nothing to do with the movie, actually. The movie-going experience was not ideal for me. And not I've never we saw we saw it at the Alamo Draft House in downtown LA, which I'd never been to. Ah. And I didn't know that it was a like that there were like servers and you know that you could have food and orders and all of this. But like just coincidentally to where we were sitting, I think really distracted me from like getting super, super in the film because I was the last seat at the top of the theater, Mm -hmm. which is where the servers have to enter in to, to go around. Now this may be true for any seat in that theater. I, I, I was wildly distracted by servers being up and down and around all the time. Like nothing they can do is going to make me not notice them. What really got me was they said at the beginning, it's like, okay, and we'll bring out your no more orders when it's uh, 40 minutes remaining and uh, we'll bring out your check then. So it was just, there's this moment where it just <laughs> felt like all the gremlins came out and like we're just <laughs> shuffling around the whole theater and like giving out these things to everyone. I'm like, all right. So that means in this film where I'm supposed to lose all track of time, I know there's exactly 40 minutes left. Cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, it's almost like setting an end is going to make, like setting that scarcity is going to make people freak out. 
Um, yeah. I just figure people's appetites would be sated by then. But uh, yeah, it's like, oh, there's still another 40 minutes left of this intense movie. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, yeah, I mean, good- it's not the movie's fault for sure. Well, uh, I I do want to watch it again, like at home. Like I want to like, you know, sit and sort of just go, okay, what what was this again? Um, but I I do think that like, I don't know, I don't know how to how to like pinpoint. Uh, like what didn't work for me because like it is one of those films where I think that the things that in the moment may have felt kind of off-putting stylistically are, are like that's part of what makes the movie work so it's it's like you kind of have to get to the end like uncomfortably mm-hmm. to to go, oh, I, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. This movie actually like has a lot of good stuff going on. But my experience watching it, in spite of the servers running around and pitter pattering up and down the <laughs> stairs, I, I didn't enjoy it. Like I wasn't like enjoying myself while I watched it. Maybe that was because I was also really tired. Whatever, like that happens. But man, I I was like, this is a lot. And I am am not ready for it or something. I don't know. Yeah, there was. Um, I think I kind of have an equivalent with that, where it both worked and didn't work for me. The uh, the quality and loudness of the tape recorder narration, which was just unending, except for that dance sequence. It just was like it wasn't grating. It was just like. I don't know, somewhere below piercing, I guess, where it just felt like it was uh, it was relentless in a way. Yeah, is that, is, that a, is that like the mix of the film? I mean, is it purposefully like that or were we just experiencing it in that theater a certain way? That is actually something that I picked up on too and that I will say did not work, I think, okay. because I had seen the risks, kind of the pre-restored, when I saw it back in 2019, it was like a kind of pre-restored version. And then I th- I want to say I maybe saw it as a 35. Did they screen it on 35 at Alamo? So uh, DCP. No. Um, I think because the second time I saw it, I, w- I want to say it was at the New Art. And I remember the audio th- seeming kind of hot. Like it, it was piercing. And I was like, I-, I mean, I'm sitting close, but not that close. And I wonder how much of that I don't remember it. I remember it being softer when I first saw it. So that's an interesting observation that it is overwhelming. I can say too, I mean, just the, the, his speaking style, Mm -hmm. it, it might give that effect regardless of the literal visceral quality of it, which again, it just, it works and didn't work to like make me go crazy, which probably contributed to giving me that horror feeling that I wanted. I mean, yeah, again, it did work for me and it didn't work for me because, but it worked for me because it's a horror movie and it made me feel uncomfortable. So just do it that way, you will. I mean, I guess, see, I, maybe I should say this. I don't know. I get, I feel like I get uh, in trouble by saying things like this, but like, I don't feel like this is a horror film. I get why it is, but like, okay, let me put it a different way. It's not my type of horror film. 
So I wouldn't classify it for me as such. And so I think my this is an expectation problem. I think halfway through the movie, I was kind of going, what, what are we doing? Like, what is this? So again, you have to finish the movie to kind of know. But like in the middle of it, I was going, uh, the whole, like, I just felt like out of sorts. And <laughs> that also is kind of a point of the movie. So it's, it's a very strange experience to have where it's like, I disliked the experience of watching it until it was over. Like, what the hell? I, that doesn't happen much. I, I agree. It is, there are aspects of the movie that are, like, grueling, you know? And I have to say, like, on the plus column, there's, like, moments of really mundane but almost kind of black humor that kind of break things up. Hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, on the one hand, I think it might be meant to be that way. Uh, but on the other yeah. hand, yeah, I, I, when I was confronted with the runtime of like, oh, I got to rewatch this before the podcast, I was like, ah, yeah, almost two hours. Let me let me see <laughs> where I can shave a few. So maybe for me, it might be an endurance and kind of runtime thing. But I know I know what you're talking about, and I yet yeah, that like defeats the purpose of the movie, which is <laughs> almost like, supposed to be a long right. slog, you know? Right. I I would be very curious to see this movie like after smoking a joint. Because I, I do think that there's almost inherent to what it is a like a calling to be in some sort of altered state while you watch it. Not that it's it's necessary, but like it, it certainly feels like it's it's a movie that is imbued with that kind of thing. So why not jump on board? Well, to, yeah. to echo Salvador Dali's famous, famous dictum when he's asked if he does drugs, you know, do you do you drop acid or whatever? He's like, I don't do drugs. I am drugs. My <laughs> feeling is like, the you know, you don't have to do drugs to watch the movie. The movie is the drugs, you know. But I think that may be a way in. And I, I think we can agree to disagree because I think we're, we're, on this, we're on the exact, I, I think this is exactly on the money. I think... I'm a guy who doesn't necessarily like horror movies. And for whatever reason, this is, this is my entree into what I'm willing to mm. classify as, a, you know, as like within the genre of horror. Uh, but there's certain ways that makes it an outlier that I think make that more possible for me. Maybe it's the black humor too. There's like really dark, like almost non jokes in it that you could kind of throw away. Like the weird religious aunt, who's not really that religious. Um, yeah, some kind of moments of just brief comic relief that um, yeah, string it together. Well, when I asked you in our last section, Brendan, uh, I was trying to get at, oh, well, assuming it worked for you in the horror movie sense, uh, what scared you about it? You kind of said, well, that would uh, you'll have to save that for the next section, which we're in now. So did the movie not actually scare you? And that's uh, what did not work or... Oh yeah, that that might be part of it. What was it that didn't work? The, I think it was the camera at the end because we're talking about like the culminating. Because mm. that's where you're, where I was confronted with that that terror of like, well, what does it all really mean? Uh, someone vanishing without a trace, and did anyone actually experience it? That's kind of terrifying, but it takes nearly two hours to get to that point. Uh, so I would say it's both a plus in the film's favor, and and uh, what doesn't work is like. Uh, the way that you 
the audience is told that the cinema really is a subjective entity, which is that kind of like the shot of the camera slowly turning. The in the diegetic in-world camera, the eight millimeter camera, I should be specific that <laughs> that Pedro is convinced is going to eat him up or something's happening uh, that turns towards the camera that we are witnessing this world through. And that's the giveaway. That's how you know it's like, it really is a monster camera. And I would say aside from the punishing subjective of experience subjective experience of watching the film and the runtime i would say that reveal might be the thing that least works for me i'm cool and kind of into the ambiguity of whether or not it was just an elaborate hoax and maybe he went out to get a soda or if he actually did self annihilate through his through this you know evil camera mm. um that's interesting. Yeah. Cause if for me, that's exactly what seals the deal and making it horrific is like, you don't have this safety net of being able to go, Oh, it's just a joke. It's just a prank. The other, right. I have to say one other extra textual film reference that I was thinking about today with respect to the, whether or not the camera, you know, it, cause it, it occurred to me, it's like, well, maybe this Pedro talks about his cinema games and it is kind of this like spider's web of like he's kind of sitting waiting for to draw people into his weird filmic world and to play games with them and he's able to enrapture people using these hypnotic or is he you know is is that an objective reality that we're experiencing or did were they on drugs and that's just what happened or they that's what they thought happened but um oh the extra textual i was thinking about Harold and Maud you know how Harold stages these deaths and as the film goes on, you're not really sure, you know, at the beginning, it's like he fakes his own death, spoiler. Um, and you think he really <laughs> killed himself, but then it turns out, you know, Vivian Pickles is like, Harold, you know, not again, whatever. He keeps killing himself. And I think when I was a teenager and I first saw that movie, I was like, oh, he's like an invincible boy. But I mean, explicit <laughs> within the movie is like, it's, he stages suicides for attention. Like they're fake suicides. They're just incredibly realistic. And I kind of was thinking about that with this movie. I was like, well, maybe there's an outside chance that Pedro is actually faking this thing happening. And it's one elaborate special effect that's aided and abetted by um, all the sex and drugs. Uh, and like, yeah, distended experience of reality and time that that our main characters are experiencing. Like, is it just a hallucination? Is it paranoia gone wrong? Or did they really get swallowed up by the camera? And maybe that's making it explicit in that way is something that doesn't work for me. Well, it doesn't work for you. I mean, what had it been that way where it doesn't show the camera moving and it leaves the possibility open for a joke, would it actually have made that more scary for you? Or like, what would the end outcome be that would have made you enjoy it more? Uh, part of me says it's too corny and it doesn't work. And part of me says it's just corny enough and it absolutely works. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like the 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 winking, like turning camera at the end that shows you that it's really happening, or at least it's we could believe that it's really happening. Uh, if it were more impressionistic, and you get, I mean, that would be one way of ending it. It's like you have a uh, you know s um, still frames of the camera. Or like some kind of photo montage where it's like, but maybe that wouldn't have been explicit enough. 
God, I mean, see, for me, it's like, you know, looking at it from horror movie experience and the whole thing is lean up to, I already said, work for me in the horror movie sense. But to put an example on it, I thought of like, I remember Fire in the Sky. It was like the scariest movie for so many of us when you're as a kid or maybe still now too. But where you have this whole horrific alien abduction scene. But then what was so scary was after that there's like the alien fingerprints that you see that are left over after he gets dropped off again as a way to say, oh, you know, this wasn't just imagined. And that's like when it goes, oh, and gives me the actual shivers, which the camera moving in this did. Zuzu's pedals, Zuzu's pedals. <laughs> you have that little, that little nod to the fact, yeah, it really did happen. It was a dream or was it? And there's sand, like I was in the mm. desert. Oh my God. <laughs> I, you know, I think I'm willing to just take it at face value Mm -hmm. in the same way that like a more modern movie like rubber just, you just get on board with the absurdity of it or the, the meta ness of it or whatever you want to call that style. It's like a tire is a, a living entity and starts serial killing spree. And it's like, it's like this movie had to exist for rubber to come about. You know what I mean? Like, so on that level, I'm like, hell yeah. Make the camera an actual just living thing that, because if it is a living thing, all of the metaphor can still exist. If it's not, then it's just metaphor. And so the horror of it kind of to me, it goes away. Mm-hmm. Maybe not entirely, but yeah, I don't know. Well, anything else that explicitly did not work for either of you? I, I would just say, I think that this is just taste, like in the in the structure of European films versus Western American films. And I, and I think that this is true, having only watched it once that this has a really short first act with a super long second act or a really long first act with a really short second act. I don't know which it is, but it's one or the other. <laughs> was there a clear midpoint for you? <laughs> well, exactly. No. Boop, and I, I think, think that was... <laughs> well, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, that could be, yeah. But I feel like that is just a product of European-style filmmaking that is different than this sort of commercialized you know, four act, three act, four act structure that we're so accustomed to that on page 25, 26, like, you know, the the break into two has to happen and blah, blah, blah. Where this does, that does not feel like that any of that is going on in this. And maybe none of the, the typical structure, of, even of the European films of the era is happening either. I, I'd have to really like dive into that. But, but, because it's really just a first viewing problem, right? Like going in with the the sort of the conditioning that we have by watching Western films so much, when it's something else, it can be a little arresting or like you can feel like you're lost a little bit. But that again, like maybe just watching it a second time, all of that goes away. So I don't know. It didn't work in the moment again, I guess is my point. Yeah. And I, yeah, I was saying at the beginning where 
it's not so much it didn't work, but maybe it could have been higher than a rent it, or maybe it will be eventually, as right. I say right. a lot. Like what's the uh what's the one that we watched by um Jodorowsky? We watched Santa Sangre. Santa Sangre like yeah. that think it'd be similar <laughs> whoa experience yeah. watching that but i became kind of obsessed with just the feeling of it and thinking about it that now it's totally a buy but i think i gave it a rent oh then. wow yeah i think that was uh i, I nodded off when I, I love hodorowski but i his films you know lest i incur the wrath of anyone uh yeah you know uh <laughs> I think he became a little controversial by things of his own you know, doing and uh, like admission but the films are fascinating, especially Holy Mountain. And Santa Sangre was one that I nodded off. I didn't quite, I couldn't quite follow it in the same way as the earlier ones. I feel, and I think feel it, like I would, that's, <laughs> is that part I, of it? I just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like all his films, that's like a very suitable first viewing experience, <laughs> which, which Arrebato, I did not fall asleep in, but it feels like. I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. I fell asleep fifty times in that movie. Yeah, which maybe oh, I did. Well, not uh-huh. say did not work. Okay, well, I feel like we're getting pretty things of notey here. So, any last things? No, good yeah. things of note. Things of note. <laughs> this should be interesting. Well, I was just going to ask about the goo, but we already covered that. Um, <laughs> anything else on why this may not be horror for you, Tim? Or can you say that, sure enough? I mean, or how would you define it? It's something that always comes up a lot in horror discussions, but we haven't touched on for a while. And I think I'd always be quick to say, oh, we, the show, uh, have a pretty broad definition for it. And maybe that's still true, but I may, maybe I'm running into here. I wonder if I have an even broader definition of horror. I mean, I was trying to think for for myself why this definitely does fall into it. Um it's. I mean, it's definitely just not needing violence and gore to make a horror movie for me, for sure. So there's that. That's like the kind of common uh, delineating thing for people. Or people will say like, oh, I, I don't like horror movies, but I loved, uh, you know, The Exorcist. I'm like, or I loved Alien, you know, something right, like right, that. Right. I'm like, well, <laughs> okay. Or, you know, Jaws, anything like that. Like, that's, yeah, that's a, well, that's a killer shark movie, man. I didn't feel scared in any way so that i mean that could be a metric i don't know if that's really what it is i don't know it 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 broadly didn't feel like a genre film i guess but it but maybe that's because it's so outside of genre. I mean, that's how uh, it's described in kind of the modern blurb for it is yeah. uh, defying genre. But I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, kind of like what you said, if it didn't scare you, I get that. But for me, it did scare me or just made me feel perturbed on some deep, uh, deep what is reality level. So, I mean, that gets the the checkbox for me. And I mean, it culminates with like, yeah, it, camera yeah traps people in evil and that feels evil you know yeah. in a certain sense so i mean that's the story of what's going on here the whole time but if but if we were putting this movie up against other movies and saying okay like what are the comparables to this i don't think i would find very many movies that 
that we classify as horror as those comps. I mean, it feels pretty video dromey, and I classify that as horror. Closer. Yeah. You would I guess. but would you consider video drama a horror film? Like I do. I feel like that's right on the cusp for me. This feels like like God, I don't know. Nothing specific is jumping out to me, but it feels like some sort of avant-garde indie thing that early mid eighties y and I don't know what to to grab as a reference to say that that's that's what it is, but American Gigolo. But it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, kind of. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's an explicit like murder. That's kind of a noir <laughs> thing. So there's reference there, but I don't know. Maybe you're, someone getting yeah. sucked into the game, sucked into the life. Yeah, uh, one of the <laughs> things we often say is like, you know, is anybody dying? Um, ultimately. Yes, in this, um, but it's not. It's not like we're shown a gun in the first act, and then like we know that we're gonna get that paid off, or we're shown a bomb. It's not. It's not suspenseful in that way. It's not set up. It's not using those devices. It did. I mean, it does though. At least for me, where it starts off with like this guy is sending this information out, this tape reel, and we know. Uh, through the narration, the way he's acting, there's something intense about it. It feels like that moment, like that's the opening of the Omen 2, where it's like (laughs) he's rushing to get out the message before the cave closes, you know? Okay, but I would argue that, okay, it feels more akin to a noir, like, detective Mm. story Mm -hmm. in its its sort of structural aspects than, than a horror film. Well, That's probably the closest I would come to. If I was gonna say, okay, what... What's the what's the grandparent of this film? It would be, you know, something with Humphrey Bogart, you know, like a you know, Maltese Falcon or or something in that realm that like you you know, you're getting this message from the beyond, so to speak, saying like and not in a supernatural way, but like you're tracking down the meaning of this thing. You're unraveling the the mystery as you go and you're coming to this, you know, this ending that that, you know, Often in those movies, the ending is is sort of the least interesting part of the story. In this one, it, it's it's I think, well, I mean, you could argue you could argue both ways. It, it's it, from one perspective, it may be the most interesting part of the movie, but from another, it not. It's uh, also maybe you could put it up against uh, Giallo films when you're talking about the the gumshoe aspect, but specifically Giallo because it feels like you lose track of what the hell's going on. Right. The details don't really ever, you know, often connect or make sense why the characters goes from this house to this, this person or whatever. Uh, yet it's those films have the the visceral, like, classic giallo blood and violence, so it's easier just to put them under the horror section. So, I don't know, this, this in a way, it felt like giallo films or had aspects of it just without that visceral violence. Well, and it also is not doing what... Well, how do I put this? Let me think about this for a second. Okay, so... Uh, if it's a... Okay, so modern... Right now, we're in a phase of horror that you know this sort of quote unquote elevated horror is essentially taking a horror story and imbuing it with the 
character depth that this movie has. Right? So Hereditary is is a scary. There's actual like horror elements, actual like sus- like very specific trauma induced horrificness. But like I feel like it's more at its core this sort of depiction of a family dis- like unraveling. Now the reasons why they're unraveling is more horrific in Hereditary than this, but like there is a similarity in that we're watching in this in in Arabeto Arabato Arabeto Arabato. Um, we're watching this this unraveling of the character, and we're really it's really more about the character than the story itself. But I think that's also true of mo- of most noir sort of detective stories it's it's not really about this the story so to speak the stories are all very similar like the, some somebody died somebody hired the detective to go figure out or somebody's go, disappeared and and they hired a detective to go find them and figure out why they're gone and whether of, or not they have the money it's like the conversation or something like that where but without the surreal element but it's about someone going crazy on this case mm. right i don't know Every time I tried to like compare it plot wise or structurally to another movie, it would be instructive, but it would always fall short of that comparison. So, like, when I was talking about The Shining, I mean, you have uh, an exterior spiritual horror that has a lot of of, like potential meanings, but the place is haunted, right? You know, the 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 place is haunted, and it manifests all of these like hallucinations or ghosts or possesses people that can kill you, right? Uh, turns your family against it turns family against itself, things like that. And, and uh, it being this like centuries long kind of horror that resurfaces um, also around addiction, I guess what was interesting, like why it was interesting to think about was like, uh, I guess maybe not only that, but uh, yeah, the, you, this small group of people among whom there are people who are sensitive to these forces and in the case of Arabato, it's like sensitive to the almost the 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 intangible and almost imperceptible like frames that aren't even there. There's like this uh, transcendent other cinema that we can only kind of like reach towards with regular everyday filmmaking. Uh, that's kind of scary to me. <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, what I was, another one would be like. Um, there's all these inversions, like uh, like I guess Cesar the somnambulist in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, right? He's a you know Pedro is a kind of somnambulist, but he's able to hypnotize other people. It's like this weird reversal of an identifiable figure of this like young possessed boy with like you know sunken baggy eyes or circles under the eyes and uh, kind of sleepwalking, but uh, with a little more, he's able to like draw people in rather than merely being kind of a marionette or uh, I guess the tool of someone else, but similarly condemned. Uh, The noir comparison is really interesting, but it's not quite a noir because it's the victim who's, I think Ryan, you had also mentioned too, it's like in a, like you kind of ordinarily would have like the detective's narrative of uh, like in uh, like a Billy Wilder kind of mystery where you have the, the, 
your protagonist's inner monologue as they get closer and closer to, you know, the the reality of the situation or they end up dead or whatever, like in Sunset Boulevard or something. Here instead, it's like the first victim that's also drawing in this this other person who he has a connection with into the same fate. I I, I actually, you know, was thinking about Sunset Boulevard earlier in that, like, you could put the Betty Boop scene up with the Charlie Chaplin scene. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that there's... So maybe what's happening partially in this is is that there's a language of cinema in this film that is cohesively like something we can latch onto, but the film itself is not uh, categorical. Yeah, and to tie it back to, I guess, yeah, when I say, you know, I can call it horror, that doesn't mean like it is clearly that for me, but it's like my (laughs) subjective experience watching it. It's not like, like my favorite movie, Pee Wee's Big Adventure as like the scene that traumatized a lot of people in childhood, large Marge scene. So you say that's scary. doesn't make it the horror movie. So I take a step further where this one, where it escalates like a horror movie for me and had me seriously like scared and disturbed in that increasing way that culminates in a most scary ending Mm -hmm. point. So that's where it's like, makes it feel horror for me. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. The subjectivity of it all is like, I've said this a number of times, like one of the scariest movies I've ever seen is The Big Short. And that is obviously not a horror film, but like it's horrific on so many levels. Like, so whatever. Did you two bring any other uh, things of note to the table here? I can return to my pet theory intertextually as to why I think this movie is so important. You know, my I'm, I'm a typical, you know, American film goer who came into the films of Pedro Almodovar as like my entree to Spanish cinema. And I learned, I, we were assigned his movies in high school, which might not be typical, but like that's kind of where I started to, with the Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. And I haven't, waded that deeply into Spanish cinema. Like I, I lived there after college for a bit and taught English and, and have an appreciation for the peculiarities of the culture and the history uh, and what I've seen of the cinema of which I think this is like an absolute standout. But uh, I mean, most people you ask around the world who like know about movies and watch a lot of movies. I mean, the first thing, because he's so well-known as Almodovar. Like, uh, yeah, Spanish cinema is Almodovar. Some Spanish people bristle at that idea. But what was fascinating to me was seeing uh, his 2019 movie, uh, Pain and Glory, after having seen Arrebato. And Arrebato, for me, is the key to understanding that movie, which is a drama about a filmmaker who is looking back on his life and both his childhood and his uh, kind of coming of age living in rural Spain in the desert. And then later, well, I guess in the present day, he's uh, got like uh, this terrible illness and back pain. And I think he might be losing one of his senses, but he reconnects with a friend of his, a film, uh, uh, I think a playwright, uh, who on and off has been addicted to heroin and is a recluse in another part of Spain. So he goes and visits this friend and I can't help but think of 
pain and glory as being Almodovar's attempt to re-examine and resuscitate his friendship with Ivan Zulueta, who himself like struggled both with heroin addiction and with with that, I mean, trying to remain active or relevant in filmmaking. And it was something that he ultimately didn't have much success with after this. I mean, this was like a, a cult hit. And on Wikipedia, he's described as being deemed a problematic auteur. And this film that came out in 1979 was kind of like a cult classic, but kind of got buried along the way. But Pain and Glory has... There's a couple of reasons why I think it's so important. Not only is the, you know, Pedro Almodovar deals so much with autofiction and writing about himself uh, loosely or his experiences and his love of cinema, but I think it seems so autobiographical or so autofictive to have this good friend of his that went separate ways, uh, partly because of heroin addiction. And ultimately, the filmmaker at the center of Pain and Glory decides to do heroin to see like what the hubbub is about. It's like, he's going through all this pain. Like, I want to see what this is about. And ultimately it kind of kicks off his, uh, or strengthens his relationship with this friend that he became estranged with so long ago. But in addition to this exploration of like a strange friendship and the strain of drug addiction on a friendship is the fictionalized central filmmaker's relationship to collectible cigar cards from the classic Hollywood era. And I can't help but think that it has to be in reference to Arrivato. I mean, maybe it was a common enough experience growing up in Spain in the 50s and 60s that it's like, yeah, you know, especially for someone who loves cinema and loves like melodrama and old Hollywood and beautiful stars and starlets of the classic Hollywood era and... Uh, how those were like safe and sanitized enough for Franco Spain that you could really, you could watch these reruns on television and films in syndication from classical Hollywood that were dubbed. But the fact that it focuses so clearly on the same thing that enraptures Jose in Arrebato as like this thing from his past and this thing from his childhood that's able to fixate his attention. Maybe I'm hyper fixating, but I found that such <laughs> a delicious and like... <laughs> inescapable link between these two movies. So uh, if you happen to be listening to this podcast or you want further viewing after watching Arrivato, see that first and then see Pain and Glory. And if you're an Almodovar fan and you've already seen it, see Arrivato because it'll totally enrich your understanding of that kind of mature filmmaker in his winter years starting to look back on his life and going back to a fictionalized or idealized version of his childhood. And where does he focus? On this booklet of collectible actor, you know, cigar cards. I I, I just had to express that as a thing of note. Um, and the actor who plays uh, Jose, uh, Eusebio Poncela, he's in multiple of Almodovar's first films. Uh, he's in Law of Desire, uh, he's in Matador. Uh, Cecilia Roth, as I said, is like in like a half dozen of Almodovar's films. So, and I want to say there might be like a law, not a law of desire poster. There's an early Almodovar poster, I think, that shows up in the background of the films because they're using real locations. So I think there's so many, um, these, those two films are in such, and the two filmmakers are in such beautiful conversation, even if. Uh, it seems like their relationship became strained where one's career took off and he was super capable and made, you know, a dozen internationally acclaimed movies and worked with some of the biggest actors in the world. And the other 
unfortunately kind of had to live in obscurity and wasn't able to maybe realize some of the projects he wanted to work on. I think that's of note. <laughs> Sorry. No, that was great. And would that also be your uh, recommendation by any chance? Oh, gosh. This ties it back. You know, when I think about um, the relationship between Jose and Pedro, I was thinking about like, you know, friends who draw you into cinephilia and the film world. And I have to blame you, Ryan. You're the one who gave me that stop motion device for my camera. No, I'm just kidding. But I remember back (laughs) in high school, because we've known each other so long, uh, I didn't even realize you could study film or major in it. And that was such a a realization. So, uh, you know, this weekend I was was back home in our hometown and I went to our old local Cinematheque and they were showing... uh, Apocalypse Now, the ultimate 4K restoration version. So while not explicitly a horror movie, the horror, the horror, I have to recommend that if you have access to seeing that in a theater. It's such an incredible, visceral, horrifying movie, and yet a lot of fun in a perverse way. And I don't know. I don't know if you'd ever trust my my what I think is a is a horror movie or not, but what is absolutely terrifying and one of the scariest movies I've ever seen is uh, Angst. Have you heard of this movie, Angst? We've done it on our show, Brendan. You did? I have to go back to the archives. Does that count as a horror movie or does that count as a horror movie? Yes. (laughs) Uh, That is one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. So it's probably why I don't watch a lot of horror movies. Okay. And uh, yes, to make it official, we are in our recommendations here, but I wasn't sure if that, what you mentioned earlier, Pain and Glory was officially going to be yours, but here we are. So you, you're recommending both Apocalypse Now Redux in theaters or, or director's cut in theaters and angst? Yeah, I guess those would be my two official on-genre recommendations. Uh, the, you know, both will, you'll have a good time at either. <laughs> great i'll just recommend dead real quick i've just finished reading uh early stephen king work salem's lot it was great i mean classic king he's doing his thing where by the end you're just totally believing whatever is happening as if it's real life (laughs) and it's worth that uh that build so i recommended that salem's lot the novel the novel yeah um you know ryan i'm gonna go off um from my typical recommendation, which would be the the next Marvel thing that's happening. <laughs> um, and I'm going to take just the slightest veer off course of that, but in the same vein. Instead of recommending She-Hulk, because it's fine, but not my recommendation. The horror. I'm gonna, the horror. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to recommend another show that is based on a comic book by Neil Gaiman um, called Sandman, which uh, is on Netflix. And if you have any sort of uh, interest in in mythological um, Neil Gaiman insanity, uh, uh, what else can I say about fantasy? So mythological fantasy... Uh, that is really seeped in an era of like goth, because <laughs> it, 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 I think it was made, like made in like eighty nine or something like that. Uh, and it's it's such read the read the graphic novel if you haven't because the art in it is absolutely insane. 
and the story is amazing. But but I'm super impressed with the the Netflix show. It's 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 really exciting and and super visually amazing as well. So get into it. Great. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for Arebato, everyone listening. And Brendan, great recommendation. That led us to these recommendations, but great recommend... I can't even say the word. <laughs> recommendation. Recommend... Recommend... Recommend. <laughs> thank you for recommending it for us, Brendan. It was great. I'm dead and loving it, baby. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Any, uh, any final words you want to say? Shout out anything of yours, anything you like? Oh gosh, there's a tail end thing I just saw today that um, Pioneers of Queer Cinema, a project that I help work on in my capacity as a legacy project manager for the Outfest Legacy Project, uh, that's making that continues to make the rounds. Uh, I would just say check out UCLA Film and Television Archive on Instagram. I don't know if it's coming to a city near you, but it's starting to go international. So it had a successful run in New York, and I think it might be coming to Canada. So uh, I can't say for sure, but uh, if you want to see some of the films that UCLA and Outfest, but especially UCLA Film and Television Archive have preserved over the years, I have a few words in that. So uh, that would make me real happy. <laughs> no What's it horror, called? though. It's a series called Pioneers of Queer Cinema. So you can continue to check that out. Of course, check out Altered Innocence. Yeah, if you want queer horror, check out uh, Knife Plus Heart. Uh, have you gotten around to that? That's kind of a slasher. Ooh, that's a that would might be an interesting one. But another film that Altered Innocence is as uh, uh, taken on. Uh, check out their their website or their social media, Altered Innocence, uh, and see see what other stuff they have going. So those are my two plugs for now. <laughs> All right, in closing. Whether you love cinema or cinema loves you, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>